This is an ABC podcast. Now, authorities believe Russian criminals are behind a ransomware attack on the world's largest meat processor. The ransomware attack has brought this abattoir in northern Tasmania to a standstill. This activity is targeting Australian organisations across a range of sectors. The White House has confirmed for us today that they expect... Do what you need to do to protect your valuable business, government and small to medium business and personal data. That's what you should be focusing on. Another week, another ransomware attack. Or so it sometimes seems. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. I can't give you an accurate number for how many occur on a regular basis around the world, because the vast majority go unreported. It's certainly in the tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, some small and some enormous, involving thousands of companies at a time. Today on the show, we'll examine the economic and political dimensions of what's now being described as a growing international crisis. And we'll speak with a man who works as a ransom negotiator to get a personal perspective. But let's start with a reality check and political economist Anya Shortland. Yes, ransomware attacks can have a political dimension, says Professor Shortland. Yes, they're made easier by the fragility of our digital world, But at the heart of it all, if you're a criminal in the 21st century, she says, ransomware attacks just make sound business sense. When we study the economics of crime, we consider criminals to be effectively entrepreneurs. So what they're looking at is the question of how much am I going to get if I'm successful? What's the probability of being successful? And what is the probability of being caught? And what is the fine or the the sanction if I'm caught? So you can immediately see that ransomware is something that's extremely promising to a criminal because you might only have a small probability of success with each individual attack, but it doesn't cost you very much. In fact, the costs of running a ransomware attack have come down massively in recent years. And if you're successful, you could get millions. Therefore, that looks good. What's the probability of being caught? Very small. What is the probability of being sanctioned? Well, if you're sitting in Russia, for example, or in North Korea or in China, the probability of that is zero. So basically, it's something that's just got upsides. And I'm not at all surprised that we're seeing a surge in ransom attacks. And has the increase in ransomware led to a decrease in more traditional forms of ransom, like hijacking and kidnapping, those kinds of activities, which are actually much more high risk? It's easy to get caught doing those. That's one thing. But of course, the COVID pandemic has uh, massively reduced the opportunities to actually get at people, get into a museum find a house to burgle that isn't occupied, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these traditional forms of taking things for ransom have decreased because the opportunity hasn't been there. But of course, everything that we do is uh, now online, almost everything we do is online. And therefore, the attack surface, the amount of traffic really gives people an opportunity to attack and get in. Well, we've seen recent global studies indicating large increases in the number of ransomware attacks globally, some stating, for example, perhaps one each 11 seconds with losses up to about 20 billion US over the period of the year. Abigail Bradshaw, head of the Australian Cybersecurity Centre. 
In Australia, at the Australian Cyber Security Centre, we've observed a 60% increase in the reporting of ransomware attacks when you compare this financial year to the last financial year. In 2019-20, the top five sectors to report ransomware incidents to the ACSC were the health sector and then federal, state and territory government agencies, followed by education and research, transport and then retail. Have ransomware attacks become more sophisticated? Are the criminals actually becoming more innovative in their approach? Top-tier criminals are broadening their tactics. So in the past, they've indiscriminately targeted large volumes of small-scale victims, and now they're shifting on to target big games, so entities that they perceive as high-profile or high-value or those which provide critical or essential services. And that means that the consequences of service disruption can be really severe. And if deployed against essential service providers or critical infrastructure, ransomware can have rapid and serious consequences for Australians. What we're seeing is the expanding use of what we call ransomware as a service, as an industry, which is making ransomware more accessible to a broader range of offenders. So criminals with limited technical skill can purchase and use bespoke ransomware variants and more sophisticated offenders can join an affiliate program and they lease ransomware in return for a share of the ransom. Well, another global ransomware attack is underway and it's estimated tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of companies in 17 countries at least have been frozen out of their data and systems as a result. And it's well, I think the reason why we've seen more of these, and, and by the way, what we hear about it are the ones that are reported, the ones that are newsworthy. There are thousands of others that we don't hear about. And, and that has been occurring for a number of years, I think. A lot of things are, are done under the table. People don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to have to tell their clients. They don't want to have to notify law enforcement. So a lot of it has been kept under the table. But what's contributing to the increase in the last year or two is the ease in which the threat actors can execute these attacks. Today, you can get on the dark web, you can buy network access from what we call an initial access broker. These are threat actors that just penetrate the network, and then they sell that access to anyone who gives them the right amount of cryptocurrency. Curtis Minder, CEO and co-founder of the security company GroupSense. You don't have to be a hacker, you can just buy the access from a hacker, and then you can buy ransomware as a service, which is a platform to deliver the ransomware software and the negotiation services as a package. What I'm getting at is that the sophistication required to execute an attack like this has gone way down. And that is contributing to the volume. Of course, we mentioned cryptocurrency and the ease of, of the transactions is contributing to that. And then finally, I'll just say that you know general cyber hygiene is not great. And like I said, the actual attacks themselves are not terribly sophisticated or largely avoidable, but a lot of folks are not addressing these basic cyber hygiene needs. So all all of these things together are contributing to the volume. And the nature of the attacks themselves, am I right in saying sometimes it's about locking down files and sometimes it's about exposure? It's about making those files public? Yeah, and, and actually the threat actors now have made a pretty common practice to do both of those things every time. So the threat actors are first gaining access to the network. They are then exfiltrating or stealing as much data from the company as they can without getting caught, taking it outside the network, and then executing the ransomware that locks the systems down and you know disrupts operations and things like that. I think the thing that gets lost on most folks that aren't victims is that 
that disruption to operation is only a small part of the overall risk and problem and all overall cost of the breach. The exfiltration of that data, depending on what your company does, could contain intellectual property, trade secrets, things like this, which later could be sold or dumped and be copied in the market. We, we've even had a client express that to us, that their biggest concern was the intellectual property that they think left the building. And they were worried that that would be then sold to perhaps their Chinese competitors, and that would have a bigger economic impact on their business than the ransomware attack itself. So that's an important point, isn't it? Because once it's over, it's not necessarily over. Yeah, that's exactly right. And one of the things we recommend on the back end of these negotiations is to monitor for that data to surface again later, sometimes a year later or two years later. Those stolen data components might be employee information, private information, healthcare information. It could also be intellectual property. And so to monitor for that on the dark web, et cetera, is a key part of the aftermath of an attack. There's really a couple ways that we stop this from happening. Let's say three, if you count diplomacy. One would be a technological approach, which would be finding some efficient cybersecurity way to block the ransomware from executing in the first place. It could also be a tool that is effectively decrypting that. That's highly unlikely, but it's, you know, it is a technological approach. Perhaps a more clever backup and restoration system, smarter backup and restoration system would solve that. So that's a technological approach. The other approach would be to subsidize a program, the local governments to subsidize a program that helps companies defend and repair ransomware without paying the ransom. Basically, the other way is don't pay the ransom. And I I think a program like this has a return on investment for most of the governments, considering how much money is leaving the country. And of course, the third one would be some form of diplomacy, sanctions, et cetera, might impact it. Are you hopeful of any of those changes (laughs) coming into into play? I try to stay positive, <laughs> but at the moment, it doesn't appear that, that we're making a lot of traction on, on any of those. Which is one of the reasons why Curtis Minder has also started offering his services as a ransomware negotiator. Well, at a high level, the ransomware negotiator is the facilitator of the communication between the victim and the perpetrator of the ransomware Often, the negotiator is also helping facilitate the payment and the logistics around the finances of the transaction. Because we're doing the negotiation over typically a dark web chat, there is no method of conveying tone or body language or you know those, those sorts of cues that you would use in a lot of other negotiations. But the main principles are very similar to a hostage negotiation. So how do you go through the actual negotiation? I mean, how do you then talk to a ransomware hacker? So the ransomware operators deploy a ransom node. It's typically a file that's on the victim's network or on a server. That file identifies a dark web location where you can interact with them. It's effectively a website on the dark web. On that website, they will have a typically have a chat function like any other chat function you would work with, and it's built into that site. And that's how most of the communication occurs. And what sort of language do you use? How do you decide what language to use? How do you define that kind of thing? So as far as language, as in regional dialects, you know, these are all done typically in English. The threat actors are speaking English as a second language and or they're using something like Google Translate. So we're we're speaking English. But to your point, language is extremely important when you're doing this. 
you not only have to understand that these people don't speak English as a first language, but you also have to understand how certain words might translate back into their language from English and what that might mean to them. That includes, you know, being cognizant of things like colloquialisms and trends in those areas. And so that's another toolkit that a good negotiator will bring to the table is some fundamental understanding of, of the languages in the region and what you can and can't say. We, we've had clients, you know, suggest certain phrases and things and say, hey, look, the word onerous is not going to translate well in Ukrainian, so we're not going to use that word, <laughs> right? And so, you know, the language itself and, and each word you choose is very important. A couple things that I, I think are good practice is you don't want to be antagonistic. You do not want to enter into this in anger at telling the threat actor that they are a bad person. They know what they're doing is bad. There's no benefit to that. We often approach it almost 100% of the time like a pure business transaction. That is really the best way to approach the, the negotiation. It ends up you know, working out in, better in the end. And in terms of that tone, do you try to establish at least some form of empathy or some kind of connection with the, the person at the other end? At times, admittedly, some of the threat actor groups have become very templatized in how they do these communications. And so that there's not a lot of opportunity to do that, at least on the front end of the negotiation. They often switch their people in the middle. So there's sometimes there'll be a person that is the initial person that you talk to. That person is there to just validate who the victim is and, and what the amount that we're asking for is. The next person they'll bring to the table is, is sort of the actual negotiator. And then finally, they'll bring the closer in. So sometimes there's up to three people that you're interacting with. They don't tell you they're switching people, but you can actually tell through language patterns and things like that, that that's what's occurring. And often it's higher in that stack of professionals that they're putting in front of you that you can use those tools of empathy and actually get across to a person. How do you measure success for a client? One is reducing the amount to below some pre-agreed budget to that budget or below it. The other is obviously that they're able to decrypt their files successfully. And the last one would be to get some information from the threat actor about their attack tactics to validate how they got access, things like that. And here's where we hit the great dilemma of all ransom negotiations, whether digital or physical, the quandary of whether or not you should pay. Abigail Bradshaw. Well, our position on paying ransom is, is there's no quick fix to addressing a ransomware attack. Prevention is always much better than the cure. But in the unfortunate event that you are the victim of a ransomware attack, we advise against paying ransoms. And that is because you will be negotiating with an untrustworthy criminal gang that's not worried about doing the right thing after you've paid. There is absolutely no guarantee that those groups will unlock or return your data once they have your money, nor is there any surety that they won't maximise their profits by selling your data on to other criminals. And of course, in recent high profile cases, we've seen that some companies have found that the decryption keys, which are provided by ransomware syndicates, are not as effective as they've been made out to be. Sound advice, perhaps. But if you find yourself in a ransomware situation, is it advice you're likely to heed? Anya Shortland again from King's College London. The question is always, what is the alternative? You could probably back up your system. You could pack up your computer and say, okay, never mind. I'll start again. Thank you and goodbye. That's probably quite expensive compared to the cost of, of paying a ransom to, to a small-time criminal. 
if you're looking at a hospital or if you're looking at an oil pipeline or if you're looking at a company that's producing perishable goods, being offline for two to six months has an absolutely huge cost. Yes, you could do it. If the ransomware, if they're not asking for that much money compared to the cost of restarting your systems from scratch, then it's clearly very tempting to give in to a ransom demand. If you're a hospital, then you're much closer to a normal kidnap or hijack for ransom situation because then you've got people's lives at risk and you can't tell people or it's very difficult to tell people that I'm sorry that your patient records have disappeared we will resume your cancer treatment in six months time that's clearly super problematic and and that's where the big ransoms are being paid and often with the knowledge and agreement of the authorities. Have you seen any evidence that using negotiators actually works, that it can uh, change the situation in favour of the person being attacked? The cyber criminals are fairly professional. So what they're looking to do is to do this over and over again. So the opposition knows exactly what they're doing, whereas if you're running a hospital, then you're not really, you don't have a comparative advantage in negotiating ransoms. So you don't know what you're doing, you're probably very nervous. And the idea of putting up some sort of resistance to a ransom demand probably doesn't even occur to you. You just want to get back online. What a professional negotiator would do would be to bring their experience, their ability to negotiate with the criminal opposition and make sure that a, there is some resistance to the ransom demand. Yes, you might be able to, to negotiate it down massively, but also to make sure that the opposition knows that they're dealing with an informed individual and therefore will hand over the decryption key and end the attack. So, yes, professional negotiators have completely transformed kidnap for ransom and hijack for ransom, and they're also beginning to do this with cybercrime. How do criminals respond to having a negotiator involved? I mean, what's in it for them to go through with that sort of process? Yeah, actually, that's a very that's a very good question. And only recently we've seen where the threat actors have specifically called out certain negotiation firms and or claimed that they wouldn't work with a professional negotiator. That's relatively recent. For the most part, they don't know that that is occurring. We don't have any reason to tell them that. So as far as they're concerned, we are the victim or representing the victim, and they, they just don't know it's, it's the case. How do you respond to the charge that by becoming involved in a ransomware incident, that in a sense you're incentivizing criminal behavior? Well, I agree with it. It absolutely does incentivize the behavior. But at the moment, for many businesses, especially small to medium businesses, there aren't a whole lot of other tools on the table. You know, when I hear that argument, I, I think that, that often those people that are making that argument have not been affected or do not know a victim. And th those who have been in the situation understand the circumstances that are causing these folks to make some form of payment. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. I talked about the proposition that certain critical infrastructures should be off limits to attack, period, by cyber or any other means. I gave them a list. 
if I'm not mistaken, I don't have it in front of me, 16 specific entities, 16 defined as critical infrastructure under U.S. policy, from the energy sector to our water systems. Of course... It's clear that US President Joe Biden believes the Russian government is increasingly involved in ransomware attacks against Western targets. That many such attacks, while appearing to be criminal on the surface, have a geopolitical element beneath. And in Western media, it's now common to look for a political motivation every time a cyber attack occurs. But what does the evidence suggest? Associate Professor Paul Haskell Dowland is Associate Dean for Computing and Security at Edith Cowan University. There's been an increase in attacks coming out of certain countries and there seems to be a a fairly clear indicator that certain countries are less proactive at investigating or at least dealing with issues in those countries. And Russia is is a good example. There seems to be a level of acceptance of that kind of behaviour coming out of that country. And there seems to be a tolerance providing the attacks don't target entities of interest to Russia. And there's some particular examples where some of the malware actually looks for Russian language on the computers that are being infected to determine whether to proceed. And that sort of indicates that either they don't want to cause a problem in their own backyard, or perhaps they're operating with some kind of support or at least a blind eye from certain countries. So would that tacit political approval or indeed underlying political motives, would those kind of cases be the exception rather than the rule? Up to now, they have been the exception. And as with most state-sponsored activities, there's little acknowledgement of what's going on, either by the victim or by the perpetrator. So you can imagine in certain countries, and I think China and Russia would be good examples, where they are the target of an attack, it is quite likely that they won't be publicly announcing that. Whereas if, for example, it was an organisation in the United States, then there is a much higher probability that that information will be publicly shared. So there's a whole range of factors at play here, but certainly it seems to be increasing. And some of the attacks that we've seen of late sort of had indicators that it might be more politically motivated than the more traditional cyber criminal gangs who are clearly financially motivated. And is there any evidence to suggest that Western countries, particularly the United States, engage in similar activities? So there's certainly anecdotal evidence. And of course, there's been various leaks over the years, particularly out of the US, particularly following the Snowden revelations, that what we might consider to be friendly countries are as engaged and as proactive in cyber warfare as any other. And certainly when you look through some of the revelations coming out of Snowden's leaks, there was an awful lot of evidence there of very proactive, directed, cyber-oriented attacks against targets. And this is where we come into the sort of political domain that It would be absurd to believe that we within Australia and the wider nations as part of the Five Eyes Network aren't involved in a number of cyber operations all of the time. And it will just come down to the sort of morals and ethics and the justifications, the legal frameworks of those countries as to whether they are considered to be legitimate targets. So we would consider a particular target legitimate and obviously the victim wouldn't. 
just as we see when organizations are targeted in, in Australia, that that is illegitimate warfare for us. But in another country, that may be considered to be perfectly acceptable. When we talk about ransomware, is it possible that a ransom could be used as a cover for hacking valuable data from companies or government agencies? It's, it's set up there to make it look like a, a criminal intent. I've not seen evidence of that, but it would be a very good strategy. We've heard calls for international cooperation to deal with preventing cybercrime and, and ransomware as part of that. How meaningful is the idea of international cooperation, given how opaque this area is and given the difficulties involved in identifying perpetrators? So international collaboration is absolutely critical to investigating these kinds of incidents. If we just look at it from the cyber criminal perspective, the gangs that are involved in these are truly multinational. And it isn't just a simple criminal organization of a few people who collaborate to undertake a crime. We're talking about multi-tiered global organizations involved in the criminal activities. And that extends out to the nation state level attacks as well. The kind of technical capability you need to achieve this at the scale it's currently being delivered is very significant. It requires vast investment. So you really need the investigative activities to be across the globe. And to, again, go back to the sort of cyber criminal fraternity, you may well have the people who are generating the malicious software as one tier, but you then have another tier who then package up that malicious software, who then pass it on to another team who deploy it across the globe and manage it, and another team who then handles the data that comes out of it, maybe classifying it and passing it on and between other players. And, and then it sort of builds layer on layer on layer, and you then sort of cross over into other criminal activities such as money laundering, because once you've got this money, especially when it comes in through the digital currencies like Bitcoin, it's traceable. And so you then have teams of people around the globe who are moving this money around, effectively washing the digital currency to try and hide it and mask where it has come from and is going to. So you can't possibly achieve an investigative activity unless you're working at a global scale. We need that not just within our friendly nations, but at a more global level, because this kind of attack isn't just targeting organizations that deliver financial services and you know, other what we consider to be critical services, but it's crossing over to the critical infrastructure. When we see these kind of attacks targeting the electricity or energy generation and distribution networks, it becomes a life-threatening situation. So we need a level of cooperation and effectively a sort of an embargo on targeting critical infrastructure, which potentially can only be achieved through that cooperation at national level, very much a political solution. Which is what the US has recently suggested with the Russians, isn't it? A moratorium on certain infrastructure. Yes, and this is effectively what we've had with things like chemical warfare and obviously trying to achieve it with other forms as well. And it sort of fundamentally underlines the criticality of national infrastructure and the fact that in more traditional forms of warfare, it would be your armed services who would be on the front line. Whereas when you're targeting critical infrastructure, which for the adversary is a safe target because you can do it effectively from your home, but it impacts on the population. It impacts on individuals in their daily lives, in their home environment. You switch off the power and you have a pretty major impact on an entire nation. So international cooperation is paramount, as you said. How difficult, though, is it going to, to be to get meaningful international engagement, given you know there are, are potentially geopolitical factors at play in all of this? 
it's going to be incredibly difficult to get a universal agreement. I mean, if we look at the difficulties in securing agreements in relation to nuclear disarmament and the the years that have passed, and we, we still have continuous battles and challenges on that front. Cyberspace is the new front. It's where the future of warfare is likely to be played out. So it's going to be incredibly difficult. You will get the usual nations to come on board if there is a proposal to perhaps extract the critical infrastructure as being a viable target for cyber warfare activities. But getting agreement for others will be much more difficult. And of course, it will be changeable over time. A change of politics within a particular country as new parties come in or as individuals who perhaps spearhead these campaigns move on from their positions and others take over, the perceptions and views of that country may change. And so it's not going to be a static arrangement. It will be a continuous renegotiation effectively. Understanding the rise of ransomware, the economics and the geopolitical. That was Paul Haskell Dowland. We also heard today from Curtis Minder, Anya Shortland and Abigail Bradshaw. Karen Savanovitz is my Future Tense colleague and co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.